Alright, so uh, the last few weeks, uh, the last several weeks, we were looking at Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. Uh, we looked at Ephesians chapter 5, uh, and we looked at the story of Jose and Gomer, uh, specifically from uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 18 and 19. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Uh, and we were looking at all these things to get a better glimpse of not just the marriages that we have between each other, uh, but the uh, you know how these marriages here on earth ultimately point to the the, the real relationship, the, the ultimate relationship. I shouldn't say real, but the ultimate relationship, or the ultimate marriage between God and us. Um, and so there is all this talk of you know wives, uh, or you know submitting, of sacrificing, of loving, of serving others. Uh, but of course, not everybody is married. So what about the singles? So last week, uh, we looked exactly at that. We looked at, at uh, this gift of singleness. So this talk of sacrifice and love and submitting and serving to one another doesn't just apply to married people, right? That marriage isn't a prerequisite to, to be able to serve others, to love others, to submit to others, that sort of thing. So, you know, just as we see uh, the call in marriage to love and to submit and sacrifice and all these things, uh, we see that same call in singleness, uh, just as in marriage we see the, the, the joy and the challenges and obstacles that it brings, we see the same in singleness, you know, just in a different way. Uh, just as we call marriage a gift, so too is singleness a gift. And so that's what we really spent on uh, our, our time last week uh, looking at, uh, or two weeks ago, I guess, uh, looking at. So we went to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 uh, and kind of combined what we were learning about marriage and tied in three things that we saw from 1 Corinthians 7 uh, to really see uh, singleness for what it is, you know, for, to, to see singleness as the gift uh, that it really is. So those three things that we looked at uh, last time we met, one was that Paul's, you know, what Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians 7 about singleness when he says things like, you know, I, I wish more of you were like me, talking about his singleness, you know, remaining single. Uh, and that, you know, if you're, if you're not married, remain single. You know, kind of thing. When Paul was saying those things, this wasn't his attack on marriage. This wasn't him saying like, you know, marriage is useless or marriage isn't, uh, you know, all that it's cracked up to be. Uh, it can't be what he was saying, because Paul is the same apostle that God uses uh, to talk about, you know, whether in Colossians or in, in uh, specifically Ephesians, uh, the, the mystery and the beauty of marriage and of what marriage really points to. God uses Paul more than any other apostle to talk about, you know, the the, the, the beauty and the the power that's in that's in marriage. So he's not saying in one letter, marriage is amazing, and then in another letter, marriage is trash. He can't be saying that. Rather, what we saw in 1 Corinthians 7, he's, he's saying, have a sober mind. Live with eternity in mind. Paul and, and the rest of the early church had a, a very real and healthy expectation that Christ is coming back like yesterday. Christ is coming back now. Christ is coming back immediately. So live with eternity in mind. That if you're not married, you can live in full devotion to the Lord. And so live with eternity in mind. So he's not attacking marriage. No, rather he's saying let's have a sober view of both. Marriage is a gift and so too is your singleness. And both of them are, to be, uh, are seasons that are to be stewarded and, and appreciated for the gifts that they really are. So he's saying live with eternity in mind. So he's not attacking marriage and devaluing marriage. Rather he's saying live sober minded. Let's have a, a clear view of both of what they bring to the table. So that was the first thing. The second thing that we saw was then, okay, so what is this gift of singleness? We, we looked at what it is, at least in part, and then what it isn't. And so what we said was, according to 1 Corinthians 7, that uh, the gift of singleness, what it really is, is the gift of time. The gift of time. That, that time that would be devoted to your spouse, if that's not there, then it can be devoted to something else. 
Paul says, you know, the, the married man is concerned, you know, with the affairs of this world uh, and, and in pleasing his wife. And that the married woman is uh, concerned with the affairs of this world and also pleasing her husband. And these, are, and these are healthy things, right? That we should be, you know, if you are married, you should be concerned about your spouse. You should be concerned about pleasing your spouse. You should be concerned about, you know, sacrificing and submitting and loving and serving your spouse, right? We, we spent uh, in the weeks prior to that talking about how marriage is a relationship of priority. And, how, and that's what God wants us to see, that marriage is a relationship of priority. That uh, between a husband and wife, that there shouldn't be, you know, you know uh, work shouldn't come before that. Uh, you know, friends shouldn't come before that. Parents shouldn't come before that. No, marriage is a relationship of priority. That your spouse is priority number one. And so when you aren't married, that time that you would have spent devoted to loving and serving and, and submitting and sacrificing to your spouse, Paul says now you can take that and devote it fully to the Lord in a way that you couldn't do in a healthy way if you were married. So the gift of singleness really is the gift of time. It says if it's not devoted to your spouse, you can take that devoted to the Lord. Then we got, went on to say, okay, well, what is or what isn't this gift of singleness when we think of the gift of singleness? Some of us think the gift of singleness and, and we kind of change it to be the gift of selfishness. And that's what, that, that is not what Paul says in his letter. The gift of singleness isn't supposed to be the gift of, uh, of selfishness, right? Singleness isn't supposed to put me at the center of my life. It isn't supposed to put me at the center of that gift. The gift of singleness, Paul is assuming that the, that the single Christian is going to take the time that was devoted to the spouse and devote it not to myself, not to whatever I want to do, not to only thinking selfishly. No, Paul says the single Christian will take the time devoted to, that would have been devoted to the spouse and direct it to the Lord. So the gift of singleness isn't the gift of selfishness, putting myself at the center you know, of the universe, the center of my life. And then we also went on to say that uh, the gift of singleness, what it isn't, we, we got to get away from thinking that the gift of singleness is like this special superpower that God only gives to you know, 0.0000002% of the population. And when he gives that special superpower to that very, very small number of people, what he does is he eliminates the desire for sex. He eliminates the desire for marriage from those people. So many of us have actually thought that this is what the gift of singleness is, is that God removes those, desire, those desires from us. And therefore, it allows us to actually enjoy our singleness. And we said that we can't think of the gift of singleness that way anymore for a couple of reasons. We said, one, if we think of the gift of singleness in that way, it can easily be abused uh, as, uh, or used as an excuse for sin. I can easily say, okay, if I don't feel like I have this gift, if I don't have that special power, God has not removed the desire for, uh, of sex and, and marriage from me, and if I don't have that power, therefore that's why I had to rush into that ungodly marriage. That's why I had to, to sleep around, because God, you didn't give me that special gift. You didn't give me that special power. Therefore, I didn't know what else to do. What else was I supposed to do? I'm sitting here burning. I'm sitting here dying. I, you know, and because you didn't give me that special power, therefore, that's why I had to really sin. And so it's not really my fault, God. It's yours. Right? I can easily take that thinking and then turn it around and say, it's not really my fault if I sin. It's not really my fault. God, you didn't bless me with that special power. And it's funny because when we think of it that way, when we use that logic, we, we, we don't apply it to marriage. We don't apply the same thinking to marriage. Right? We've never heard somebody say, well, I didn't have the gift of marriage. 
And so when I got married, you know, that's why I just I couldn't stand that person. I, I, I had to divorce them. I had to to sleep around. And, and, you know, I was unfaithful in my marriage. I had to divorce that person or I had to go sleep around. Why? Because, God, you didn't give me the special power to remain married or to remain faithful to this person. And nobody would ever. No, we, we don't ever say anything like that about marriage. But yet we use that kind of logic when we think of this, the, you know, singleness or this gift of singleness. And so we see how it doesn't really, it doesn't really work. So um, we said, yeah, it can easily be used as an excuse for sin. We also said why we don't want to think of this gift of singleness as this special you know, power. Because it encourages bitterness rather than godly contentment. It encourages bitterness rather than godly contentment. If I don't feel like I have this power, but I feel like Ezra has this power. Like he's got this power. Like God has given him that, that, that special power of the gift of singleness, but God didn't give that to me. And Ezra's out here, he's living life, and he's loving it, this, that, and the other. But I'm over here like, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, not enjoying my singleness because I feel like God didn't give me that power. Right? So I believe that I'm only going to be satisfied. I'm only going to be content. I'm only going to be happy when I finally get married. So it, it encourages this bitterness in my season of singleness because God, well, you didn't, you're not helping me and you're not giving me this special power and I'm only going to be satisfied. I'm only going to be content when you finally bless me with marriage because you didn't give me the same gift that Ezra has. The only reason Ezra can enjoy this season of singleness is because, oh, you gave him that special power. But because you didn't give it to me, I'm over here just dying and, and bitter and in and, and, and all of this because you know, I, I'm not married yet. I have to wait until, until then, then I'll finally be happy. I'm going to be not only that person, I'm, only, I'm, I'm not only going to be you know, discontent in my singleness and bitter in my singleness, but that same person will also be discontent and bitter in their marriage. Because that person has a very high and, and unhealthy view of marriage. Because what they're saying is, the moment I get married, that person is going to be the reason why I can find contentment. That person is the reason why I can find joy. That person is going to be the reason why I find satisfaction. And lo and behold, when you get married, and you're going to find, okay, I was... I basically took God and replaced him with, you know, this idea of my spouse and said, what God could only satisfy, what God could only could only do in me, I placed upon this person. And of course, that person is going to fail you. So I'm going to be bitter in my singleness and I'm going to be bitter in my marriage because I have an unhealthy view of both singleness and marriage. So, again, this idea that the gift of singleness is the special power that God gives to a very small number of people, you know, and, and, and the rest of us are just, you know, left out to dry and, and just you know, be bitter and all that. We can't think of it that way anymore. So then finally we said, okay, so then how are we to use uh, our singleness? And we said, one, we want to change our view of it. Uh, and first, how we change our view of singleness is by changing our view of God. The more I see God rightly, the more I begin to see everything else rightly. If I see God for who he really is, I begin to see everything else for, for what it really is. If I see God as my father, I begin to see myself as his son. If I see God as my shepherd, I begin to see myself as his sheep. If I see God as my groom, I begin to see that, oh, I'm never alone. That I, have, I am never for a moment going to be forsaken. If I see God rightly, I begin to see everything else rightly. So how am I going to change my view of singleness? It first starts with changing my view of God for seeing him for who he really is. That he is my father, he is my shepherd, he is my teacher, he is my, my provider, he is my groom. So the more I see him rightly, the more I begin to see singleness rightly, and this season rightly. Then we said the next thing you want to do is begin to uh, prayerfully look where God has placed you. What is going on around you? 
What is, whether, whether church, whether school, whether home, whether whatever it is. In this season of singleness, God, what does living in full devotion to you look like where you have already placed me? Because again, the gift of singleness is not the gift of selfishness. It is the gift of singleness, meaning full devotion to the Lord. And so God, where is it that you have placed me? I begin to open my eyes, again, church, work, school, you know, whatever place that God has placed me, and say, what does full devotion to you look like in this place? What does full devotion look like in this season? What does full devotion look like to you, whether at home, at work, school, again, wherever? What does that look like, Lord? What is it that you want to do in me and through me now that I don't have this time devoted to this person, I can now take that and devote it directly to you. What does that look like where you've placed me already? And then lastly, we said, uh, begin to invest and build in the godly friendships around you. Right? Singleness is not meant to equate loneliness. Just as singleness is not the gift of selfishness, singleness is not meant to equate to loneliness either. That we are not called to do life alone. We are called to do life as a body. Whether married or single, we are called to do life as a body of Christ. And so you begin to invest and build in godly friendships around you. And it's interesting that as we do all these things, as we're acknowledging God in our singleness, as we are you know, living in, uh, in love and sacrifice and submission and serving one another, isn't it interesting that you're actually being prepared for marriage, if that should be in your future? That the more you begin to live, not selfishly, but finding that contentment in the Lord, the more you begin to live, not for yourself, but serving one another, the more you begin to put the needs of others before your own, but the more you begin to serve and to submit and sacrifice and love others, isn't that interesting that you're being prepared for marriage? So doing what you are called to do in your singleness is actually a good thing for you. Whether you get married or not is a good thing for you, but it's interesting that it prepares you for marriage. So that was last time, uh, the gift of singleness today. We are going to read from Colossians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. We're also going to read from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. And today we're looking at the relationship between parents and children. So Colossians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. And then Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. So uh, Colossians chapter 3.20 says, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Read that one more time. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or else they will become discouraged. Flipping to Ephesians chapter 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Read that again one more time. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. All right. So, First thing right off the bat, and, and just kind of as a precursor to this, but not only just to this, but to everything that we've been talking about in this Bible study. There isn't any part 
of our lives that isn't affected by the gospel. The gospel message touches absolutely everything. It, again, you know, the, the, uh, the themes that we've been talking about in our study of Colossians have been, who is God, number one? Number two, what is his view of us? How does he view us individually? How does he view us corporately as the church? Three, the gospel message is sufficient to satisfy you, sufficient to save you. And then, of course, in light of those three things, how then are we supposed to respond? And that response is in everything that we do. So the gospel message, the, 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 the message of who God is, the message of how he views us, the message of how he saved us, the message of, his, of this uh, uh, joy that we find in him affects everything that we do. So everything that we do is in response to who God is, how he views us, and his gospel message that he has presented to us. And of course, part of what the gospel message touches, of course, it, it touches everything, but part of what it touches is our relationships, every single one of them. Whether it's husband and wives, whether it's you know, brother and sister, whether it's brother and sister in Christ, whether it's you know, parent-child, whether it's employer-employee, whether it doesn't matter. The gospel message touches everything. And so hopefully, as we're you know, kind of getting close to wrapping up our study of Colossians, we're starting to see that the gospel message touches everything. That now, the response that I have, how I live my life day to day, should be in response to who God is, what he's done for me, you know, how he views me. And this gospel message that he has presented to me, that he has graced me with. So there's nothing and no one in the, in the Christian life that is exempt from responding in a way that reflects the gospel. There's no part of our lives that we say like, okay, I'll respond in this way, but over here, like then I'll believe you, right? I'll respond uh, like kind of how I want to, like over here, but like in these areas of my life, right? That we, we're not supposed to reserve any part of our life from him. Every part of our life is supposed to be affected by who God is, his view of us, and this gospel message. So, in that being said, children, obey your parents. Now, all of us are obviously children here. Uh, and then, of course, in the future, you guys will be having children. So, there is something to be, there, there, there's, there's a lot to be learned here, even though. We're not parents quite yet. You can also, I want you guys to also apply this as well. I want you guys to apply this to, uh, if you guys are in positions, uh, if, like if you're serving at your church, like in any kind of youth leadership, uh, if you're serving, you know, maybe like you work at a school or something like that. If you're in some kind of maybe fatherhood or motherhood role, you know, maybe people don't call you mom and dad, but you know, there, there's some kind of maybe fatherhood or motherhood role that you might play. Apply the same kind of logic. And now, of course, when we think of uh, children obeying your parents, which we're going to talk about right now, you may also think of, obviously, of your immediate parents. But if there are people that you look up to as like mentors, as fathers or mothers that are, you know, spiritual fathers and mothers in your life, you can apply the same kind of thinking as well. So there is obviously, when we're talking about children obey your parents, we're going to go through that one first. There's obviously wisdom in learning from another person's life, another person's mistakes. Um, rather than having to experience it yourself. There is a lot of wisdom that comes through being able to hear from someone, submitting to that person and saying that you, you, you've been there, done that, so to speak. So if I just hear what you have to say, I don't have to go through the same exact things that you went through. There is a lot of wisdom in that. And one of the big issues that we have, I think, especially within our community, within the Abishai community, like we always talk about this within not just this church, but I hear this in almost every church that I've been a part of. 
Right? There's this disconnect between the parents and the children. There's this disconnect between the parents and the youth. There's this, you know, like, oh, we, we, there's this cultural gap and a language gap and this, that, and the other. And there's this, there's this, like, how many of us don't know the story of, like, how our parents got here or, you know, the, the, there's like, you'll, you'll never hear anything and then all of a sudden your, your dad or your mom will hit you with like the absolute most insane story of how they got arrested or how they got, you know, uh, uh, they were a refugee in like the most random camp in either like Sudan, Kenya or something like that. Like you didn't hear any of this and then all of a sudden they just share that kind of knowledge with you. It's like that kind of, there's this disconnect that's there. And partly, sometimes, it's not only because they, you know, you know we can't always point the finger at them and say, well, they're never speaking. Sometimes we aren't listening either. There's plenty of wisdom that we can gain from our parents. Plenty. And Paul goes on to say, this is actually, not only is it good to, to listen and to, to learn from their mistakes and submitting to them and those sorts, he says this is actually the first command that comes with a promise. Long life. As he says in Ephesians. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. So he points to Exodus. He points to the Ten Commandments saying, there's a promise that actually comes with honoring your father and mother. Long life. We know this if we use the classic example of, you know, a, a parent and a, and a really young child, right? Don't touch the stove. Don't put your hand in the fire. Long life if they listen, right? You're, you're preserving that child's life when they listen you know, if that child begins to listen to the wisdom that you can impart to that person, you preserve their life. And how many things can we learn from our parents that just might preserve our life? Not just in the sense of like, you know, don't touch the stove or don't touch the fire, but how much can we learn that actually might preserve our lives? For the Israelites, when they were about to take the promised land, God, their father, was warning them, hey, when you go in and you take this land, you are not to mix with the people of that land. You're not to marry. You're not to give your sons over into marriage. You're not to give your daughters into marriage. Why? Because their children will lead your children astray. They will fall into idol worship. They will fall into sacrificing to, to these false gods. They will fall into very detestable things. So they are not to mix. What was God doing? God was warning them as a father, showing them, hey, this is the right way. Right? Trying to preserve their life. Just as a father would, just as a mother would to their own children, this is what God was doing for the Israelites. And what ended up happening when the Israelites went into the promised land? They began doing exactly what God said don't do and how much judgment was brought upon them. Their lives were not preserved because of their disobedience. We see that at an individual level. We saw that on a national level. God, of course, still being gracious to them. And that's, that's another you know, sermon for another time. But we see this example, basically. This command. When you honor your father and mother, when you begin to listen to what it is that they have to say, there is actually, the wisdom that you can gain can actually preserve, prolong your life. As children, we don't often think that obedience uh, can preserve our life. We don't, we don't equate the two. Obedience and preservation, obedience and prolonging life. But now, here what we see in Paul's letter, again, as a response to who God is, as a response to what he has done for you, as a response to what he says about you, as a response to how he views you, as a response to the gospel message. Here, Paul is saying this obedience that you can, you know, that you can show to your parents will actually preserve your life. There's a... Yeah, I'll show you the story. It's kind of funny. So... 
when I was, I want to say I was 15. I was 15. Yeah, I was definitely 15. A friend of mine, he had just gotten his license. So he was 16. And I don't know how they do it here in Tennessee, but like when you get your first license, uh, you know, obviously they don't hand you like the hard copy right then and there. They have to mail it to you. So they give you a paper copy. Is that what they do here? They do. Okay. So he has his paper license. So he doesn't have his physical uh, copy yet. So just so you know, like how fresh this license is. Like he just has the paper, the paper license. And so me and one other person were at his house, um, maybe like day three that he has this license. Day two, day three. And his parents were about to go out for dinner. They were there, like they're having their own little date night. And before they leave, they sat all three of us down. And they're like, you know, he has a car. He has the keys. He now has this license. And his parents sat all three of us. It wasn't just him. All three of us were there. And they were like, we're going out to dinner. If you guys go anywhere, make sure you have a destination in mind. Don't just be going around driving for the sake of driving. If you have, if you're going to leave this house, have a destination. Like, go to the movies and come back. Go to the store and come back. Go to the gym, whatever it is. Wherever, if you leave this house, there needs to be a destination in mind. Am I clear? Right? Like, that's what they're like. Are we clear on this? Yes. So if we, if you guys go out. You, you will have a destination in mind. You will have a place that you are going. And then once you get there, you do whatever you need to do. You come back. Right? Right. Cool. So they left. And so what is it that we did? As soon as they left, we waited. Because we knew that they were going to be sitting outside, like, seeing if we were going to leave. So they were, like, down the street. And we were right. We've, uh, they, like, parked down the, at the end of the street to see if we were going to leave right away. So we waited 15 minutes. They left. Uh, then, then, yeah, we were smart. Then... We get into the car, and we start driving. Where are we going? Don't know. We have no destination. We were literally going to go for a joyride. So what we ended up doing is, you know, we're driving around the neighborhoods a little bit. He's picking up speed, that sort of thing. We're like, all right, let's go to the highway. This is getting a little too slow. So we go to the highway. And about 20 minutes from our house, from, yeah, from where we all lived, uh, the highway speed goes from 55 to 75. So we're like, all right, we'll go to that part of the highway because it's faster. And so... We go over there, we drive, you know, about, you know, two, three miles or so up on, you know, this side of the highway, we exit, we come back on, only to, like, and we did that like four or five times, because we were looking for cops, we were looking for cops, see, okay, is there anybody, that's, is there any cops, like, you know, hiding or driving, just casually, all right, and we're doing the speed limit right now, so we get off, we come back on, no cops, we get off, come back on, no cops, do this big loop, four or five times, then we're like, all right, cool, no cops, book it. We get up to 120 miles an hour. 120 miles an hour. And all of a sudden, what do we see behind us? Lights. Blue lights. Cop pulls us over. Friend rolls the window. Oh, well, before that, all I, I didn't see the lights at first. All I hear, now I'm not going to repeat what he said, but he's like, oh, mm, mm, you know. Um, and I'm like, wait, what? And then I can, you know, I look, and I'm like, okay, yeah, yeah, I see it. So he pulls over. Cop comes up to the window. It says 115, which means when he clocked us, he got us at 115, but we were still accelerating when he got us. So we were still going. As we got up to 120, I was watching the, the thing. <laughs> Cop comes up, one, 115. He gets arrested right on the spot. All three of us have to go to the police station. 
They have this man sitting in handcuffs. They take that paper license and they shred it right in front of him. <laughs> right in front of him. I don't know. Do, do they do like a point system out here? Yes. Points. Okay. So I, if I remember correctly, I think in Colorado, if you're, a, if you're under the age of 18, I think you could only have is either four points or six points on your license. I don't remember exactly what it was. That was a 24-point ticket that he got right there. 24 points. Just like that. In one, one instance, 24-point ticket, they shredded the thing right in front of him. Uh, they, they separated us. Like, after they did that, they separated us. So they had him, you know, in one place, and they had uh, the, uh, me and the other person in another room. They called his parents. This person, her mom, uh, his mom, was not on speakerphone. I could hear every word that she said. And again, we're not like in the next room or anything like that. There was like a room, it's a long hallway, and it's like this big, like, I could hear every word. Every word. And again, I'm not going to repeat everything that she said, but like, I told you, if you go anywhere, have a destination in mind. What the were you doing? What, you know, driving and all this stuff. Like, I mean, she was furious, obviously, and rightfully so. Rightfully so. The reason why I share that story. We did not listen to what their parents had to say. We did not listen one bit. And even though technically like, it wasn't my fault, you better believe I was egging him on. You better believe I was like, all right, let's go. Let's, let's do this. I mean, outside of God's grace, had we hit somebody? Had he lost control? Had he slipped out? I mean, a million things could have happened. A million things could have happened. And because we didn't listen to the very simple wisdom of don't just go around joyriding, my life definitely could have been cut short. His life, the other person's life, easily. Not just us three, but those who were around us, if we hit somebody, got into a wreck or something like that, easily. Life not prolonged because we didn't honor his father and mother. We decide to take that advice, that very simple advice, toss it out the window, and go for a little joyride. Right? Again, thankfully, nothing happened. Now it's a funny story. But how easily that could have been very different. Proverbs chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 says, Listen, my son, to your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. They are a garland to grace your head and a chain to adorn your neck. That's Proverbs 1, 8 9. Proverbs 3, 1 and 2. My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring you peace and prosperity. So it, gives you, it makes you think for a second. It, gives, you know, it causes you to pause for just a second. Like maybe, like yes, our parents were not always right. Obviously. Obviously. But maybe they just, they're not as crazy as we think they are. Maybe. In some areas. Maybe. So children, obey your parents. Then Paul goes on to say, fathers, do not exasperate your children. And so, and in this section, what we see is, you know, for the parents, uh, the don't do, but then we also have the, here's what you should do, you know, kind of thing, right? The don't do. He says, do not exasperate, meaning don't provoke your children to wrath. If you're familiar with uh, uh, Paul's writing in Ephesians, have you ever, uh, you ever remember the verse where he says, do not go to sleep on your anger? Don't go to sleep angry. It's that same word that he uses here. That exasperate or that wrath. 
Don't go to sleep in your anger. Don't go to sleep in your wrath. Here he's saying, don't exasperate. Don't, don't, get your, don't provoke your children to that same kind of wrath. How do you provoke you know, a child to that wrath? Right? The unreasonable commands, the unnecessary severity, uncontrolled anger. Right? Paul goes on to say in Ephesians, in your anger, do not sin. Right? You can be angry, but in your anger, don't sin. In Colossians, you know, the, uh, in those verses that we were looking at, he says, fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Do not embitter uh, or do not provoke your children to anger or they will become discouraged. That word discouraged there means broken in spirit. Broken in spirit. And the idea that it gives is this, is like someone is trying to reach an expectation They're trying, they're trying, they're trying, they're trying, they're trying. And yet, they always, always fail. And because they always, always fail, they become broken in spirit. What's the point of trying anymore? What's the point of trying to, right, if you're trying, if in the case of parents and children, if I'm trying to please my parents, and I'm trying to honor them, and I'm trying to do as they say, and yet it never seems to be enough, Eventually, that child is going to give up. Can't please you. If my all A's and one B is going to get the, the, the same exact reaction as C's and D's, well, then what's the point of trying? What's the point? It's never enough. And what Paul is saying is we need to be careful when you become parents or if you have a kind of, again, fatherhood or motherhood role in someone's life is that you don't provoke your children to that kind of wrath. You don't embitter them. You don't discourage them to the point where they're so broken where like all they're trying to do is please you. All they're trying to do is please you. And yet the, 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 the bar seems to keep moving. Right? It's, the only thing that is highlighted is the fault. The only thing that is highlighted is the wrong. The only thing that is highlighted is the bad. The only thing is, that, is, that is highlighted is where we fell short. And when that happens, Paul says, what? You, you, you lose your child. They become broken in spirit. So he says, don't do that. Right? The goal is not to constantly find the fault. The goal is not to just interfere for the sake of interfering. Rather, Paul says, bring them up in the training and in the instruction, or in some translations, in the, uh, the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. So... Not, don't do this, rather, do this. Bring them up in the training and the instruction, or in other translations, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. What does that mean? The nurture. That's the instruction that trains someone to reach full development or maturity. The instruction that trains someone to become mature. The point of parenthood, the point of of raising up those who have come up Uh, after you is to say, I want you to become mature on your own. I want you to become independent. So he says, train them in the Lord to become mature in the Lord. Train them in the way of life so they become mature. That they begin to have a healthy view of who God is, have a healthy view of how God views them, have a healthy view of the gospel message. Why? So that when they begin to, to, to go out on themselves, on their own, they have, okay, if this is who God is, 
This is how God views me. This is the gospel message. I now know how to respond in my day-to-day life. That's growing in your relationship with the Lord. That's growing in maturity in the Lord. Being able to know who God is and how he views you and and what the gospel says and being able to apply that in my day-to-day life. Again, the gospel message touches everything. And so a mature, someone who's maturing in the Lord knows that and says, okay, God, this is how I think you would want me to respond in this situation. And this is what your word says about this situation. And this is how, see what I'm saying? So he says, bring them up in the instruction that trains them to reach maturity. That's the nurture. And then the admonition. That's warning, again, through teaching, to help improve a person's reasoning so they can reach God's solution. So very similar. This time, you know, admonition kind of uh, has a a heavier sense to it. This is warning. This is a bit of warning. Not necessarily like punishment or anything, but this is warning. Like, hey, if you do this, this is the consequence, just so you know. There's warning there. But of course you warn somebody you love. Don't touch that fire. That's going to burn you. Don't just drive around with no destination in mind. There's, 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 if you love someone, you, you, you would warn them. Instruction that trains someone to reach maturity. Warning through teaching to help improve a person's reasoning so they can reach God's solution. And then another thing to think of. If I'm thinking, okay, how can I really do this? How can I you know, make sure that I'm, I'm, I'm that kind of person? You know, if I become a parent, if I'm that kind of person in ministry, I'm that kind of person. How can I, how can I make sure that I'm not you know, just uh, moving the bar so much where everyone is just constantly trying to please me, and, and, but I'm only pointing out the faults and that sort of thing? How has the Father treated you? Just look to your Heavenly Father. Again, it's important to know him as the shepherd, as the teacher, as your groom, as your your guide and your comforter and your provider. Again, in the same way, it's also important to know him as your father. How has the heavenly father treated you? Hasn't he been slow to anger? Hasn't he been quick to forgive? Hasn't he been full of kindness and compassion? Doesn't he delight in showing mercy? Does he chastise? Does he, does he rebuke? Of course. But never without love. Never without love. Does he get angry? Never without love. Is he like super happy when, when you sin? No. But does he love you? Absolutely. If I'm trying to figure out, okay, how can I show that instruction, how can I show that admonition? How can I show that training? How can I show you know, what fatherhood and motherhood looks like to those who, how can we show that to those who come after us? I can take a quick moment, pause. God, how is it that you treated me? What is it that you have done for me? How is it that you have raised me? How is it that you have instructed me? How is it that you have taught me? How is it that you have corrected me? See? There was something that, um, I remember, uh, I think I've shared this with a few of you guys, but um, I remember my mom shared this with me after I got saved. And she said, some, she said um, parents are imperfect people raising imperfect kids. Parents are imperfect people raising imperfect kids. And for some reason, when we were having that conversation, it just, like, something clicked for me. It's like, I, I know that, but now just hearing it, you know, from her, it, it again, something, something just clicked. Like, wow, you really aren't? Perfect. Right? Like the, there's grace for you. 
there's grace also for me. Because, yeah, you know, were, were, were my parents perfect? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Was I the perfect son? <laughs> no. Definitely not. Plenty of stories for that. But yet, when, when she said that, it was, wow, that, that's true. There, there is grace for you. Right? So the, the, the anger that, that I could have had, right? or the bitterness, or the resentment that I could have had, like, no, they didn't do this the right way, and they, they were wrong in this area. And, and very well in some of these, I'm absolutely correct. I am. But yet in those situations, no, you know what? There's grace for you. The same God who has forgiven me, the same God who has loved me, the same God who has grace for me, the same God who is still working on and in maturing me is the same God who has loved them, protected them, provided for them, maturing them, forgiving them. Right? It's the same God, the same grace. So there's like this relief, I guess, you know, in knowing that, yeah, I didn't have the perfect earthly examples, but I do have the perfect heavenly example. That there's this relief in knowing like, you know what? Yes, you've messed up, and yes, I've messed up. There's still grace for both of us. We're still growing. We're still loved. We're still a family. And so the same for all of us. Yes, your parents have messed up. Yes, you have messed up. There's grace for them. There's grace for you. And so then now thinking forward, whether it's now, again, if you're, you're leaders in ministry, you're going to have kids soon, whatever that may look like. What did it look like as a child to my physical parents? What does it look like to be a child of my Heavenly Father? Where was I incorrect? Where was I right? Where was I wrong? And all these things. And now, Lord, help me to now pass that on. What were the, the mistakes that my parents made? We're a lot more like our parents than we'd like to realize. We're a lot more like them than we'd like to realize. Yeah, I remember all of us have done this growing up. I'll never be like that. I'll never say this. I'll never do that. You lie. You lie. You're just like them. I'll never make that same thing. I would never do that to my child. Watch. Watch when you're mad. See how you respond. You're gonna, that's your default mode. What you always saw. And so then now, knowing that, if we, if we can be humble enough to recognize that in ourselves... Okay, God, that was the example that I had. That wasn't always the best. Now let me look to that example. That's the example that I need to always be looking at. Let that be my default mode. Let him be my default mode. More than, you know, what was incorrect in my parents, so to speak. So, that being said, parents and children. We're going to take a moment to, to pray. Um, I want to take just maybe two, three minutes to put on some music to, to pray. Uh, because there's, there's a lot. Yeah, of course, there's a lot more that we can talk about you know, with this. But I think for tonight, what I really wanted to just pray for is that we would begin to forgive. That we would begin to forgive our parents. That we also begin to forgive ourselves. You know, because sometimes there's, there's this pain of like, you know, I'm trying to measure up and I want to do good and I want to do good and I want to do good, but I feel like the failure. I feel like I'm messing up, right? And so again, God has grace for our parents. God has grace for us. Right? And so tonight, I just want to take a few minutes. We're just going to pray for forgiveness and say, Lord, you have forgiven me where I have fallen short. That same grace is available to my parents. That same grace is available to father figures and mother figures in my life. Who fell short. So Lord help me to, to just forgive. 
Help me to just forgive. And help me to also receive forgiveness, again, like I said, for myself as well. That where I have fallen short, that you, still, you haven't given up on me. You still love me. You still accept me. Your, your call in my life has not, not you know, suddenly just diminished or, or disappeared or anything like that. You're still the same God. You're still my, you're, you're, you're still my Father. So we'll take a few minutes uh, to, to pray.